Well, I didn't really expect all that. But I want to welcome you all again to my church. Um, before I get started this morning, I want to call Justin Williamson, if he's, there he is. Justin and, and a leadership team took a bunch of kids to, uh, to the beach for a, for a uh, youth camp, and he wants to give you a little recap of, of how it went. It was awesome. So, Justin. All right, good morning. My name is Justin Williamson. If you've never met me, I'm one of the leaders among a bunch of them that help out with middle school and high school students. And uh, we took them on last Friday to Panama City Beach for four days. I know, I, I needed a nap for a couple days afterwards. And I, how many people in here have teenagers? I know why you're in the second service, because they take forever to get ready. That's the two questions. Mr. Justin, we need more time to get ready, and can I take a nap? And the answer was always no. But we had a great time. The, the beach was beautiful. It was wonderful. All that stuff. The, the camp was a few thousand high school and middle school students going to camp. And you see pictures of those are all our kids right there. They're beautiful kids and amazing. But the biggest thing about the trip is that out of 18 people, kids that went, 11 of them got saved. And that's amazing. And when you invest in kids' lives and you see them changed, man, it makes a change in my heart. Because they are amazing. They are the church. A lot of people say they're the future of the church, but I think they are the church. I came from an unchurched family. I started youth ministry when I was 15 years old. Jeff's, Jeff was my youth pastor. He saved my heart. He changed my life. He changed my twin brother's life. And, in they, and that helped me get my mom saved and people inside my family saved. So I was the church to my family. They are the church. They, they're not the future. That's what's here. And uh, I just want to tell you, thank you. Keep praying for them. If you see them, encourage them, love on them. They are the church. Um, my name is, <clears throat> excuse me, Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the leaders here at my church. And I'm thrilled to be here today. To have a little conversation, uh, I want to tell you, though, our lead pastor, Jeff Murphy, will be back next Sunday. Uh, we've got God Plunge next Sunday. He'll be back preaching, so you'll be done with us goofballs that have been doing this for the last six or seven, seven weeks. Um, I want to ask you this morning to, to use your imagination for a minute. For some of you, that may take a lot of imagination. I don't know. For some of you, maybe not so much. And this is, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian... If you had never thought about being a Christian, if you used to been a, be a Christian, been a Christian all your life, I don't know. I just want you to imagine what your life would be like if you had absolute, total confidence and assurance that, number one, that there really is a God, and number two, that He is a God that knows your name. He knows where every hair is on your head. It doesn't take Him long on mine, but He knows where every hair is on your head and He cares about you. And number three, that He is a God that's going to walk beside you every day, and He's promised never, ever, never to leave you or forsake you. And He's going to, no matter what comes your way, He's going to be there with you. And so imagine if you had that kind of faith where, I mean, the kind of faith where when something really, really bad happens, you would say, oh, well, there's nothing that I can do about that anyway, but I'm just going to trust God to see me through it. The kind of faith that when you faced a huge temptation, not if, but when you faced a huge temptation, You'd say, God, you know, I don't know how in the world that I'm going to say no to that or 
everything on the inside of me just wants to do it, but I just have perfect faith that you are bigger than all of that, and I'm just going to trust you. And the kind of faith when something really good happens, like all of a sudden you have way too much money, or all of a sudden this girl is way totally out of my league, the way it was when Susan and I started dating. And I just trusted that, that, he, was, that he brought that my way, and I just would praise him for that. What if you had this amazing, out-of-the-box, you know, faith that no matter what it was that happened, you simply trusted him. You, you trusted him when things got worse and worse. You would look up and you'd say, I know you have a plan for my life, Lord, and I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm just going to do the next thing. And you were totally at peace. And you were totally at peace because he's going to do that thing he does. And, and here's the deal. That movie, uh, that thing you do, this message ain't got not one thing to do with that movie. And it's not just I like the song. I mean, I do like the song. But the, the message has nothing to do with that movie, but the message has everything to do with the name of the movie and the, and, the, and the name of that song, that thing you do. And so imagine if you had no anxiety. Imagine if you had no fear about your kids. If you had no fear about your marriage, you had no fear about your finances. Um, and, I mean, it's not like everything always goes your way, but you just had this unbelievable faith that God was with you and he was in you and he was around you and he had his arm around you and he's holding your hand. Just imagine if you woke up every day with that kind of faith and you met people like that. Maybe your mama was that way. Maybe if you grew up in a Christian home and when things went bad, maybe really, really bad, your mama would say, well, you know what, honey, we're just going to have to trust the Lord with that and we're just going to give it on up to God. Maybe it wasn't your mama. Maybe it was some other Christians that you knew that maybe they were going through crazy horrible times and you were almost like doubting God for them and and you thought how in the world could God allow whatever it was could God allow that to happen to him but their reaction was I'm fine I'm fine I'm just trusting that he's going to do that thing he does and they simply had this remarkable faith and I don't know have you ever met anybody like that do you know anybody like that and you just kind of want to go are you blind do you not see what's going on around you but when you meet a person that has that big old mind-boggling, out-of-the-box, crazy faith, even if you're not a God kind of person, there's something that is so attractive about that. And so just imagine if that was your experience. And that is exactly where God wants you to be. And that is exactly where God wants me to be. And when you read the story of the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, it's a story of God trying to build into people a crazy, out-of-the-box, over-the-top, are-you-kidding-me sort of faith and confidence in Him. And that's the story of the Bible. And the reason that's the story of the Bible and the reason that that is the, the story of your life and of my life is because in the beginning, the break with God and man happened over issue of trust. It wasn't just a matter of disobedience. It wasn't that God gave Adam and Eve a little to-do list and they just jacked it up. The thing that broke the relationship between God and man was man's refusal to trust him. Man's refusal to trust him. Man decided, I know better. I decided that I know better. I don't need God. I don't trust God. As a matter of fact, I think you may have some hidden agenda and I trust myself. I trust the man in the mirror. So the relationship break happened over the issue of trust and God's been reworking that whole trust thing since that day. Imagine if you woke up every day like that. Would that not impact every relationship that you have? 
every day if you woke up that way with that kind of confidence and that kind of trust in the Lord. So if we back up nearly 3,800, 3,900 years ago, God created the nation of Israel to show the rest of the world what it was like to have a relationship with him. And so when God launched Israel as a nation out of slavery in Egypt, the first thing he did, and this was so cool, the first thing he did was not to give them the Ten Commandments. The first thing he did was he reached his hand down into Egypt and he said, just trust me. Just, I need for you to just trust me. And miraculously, Israel was delivered out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they said, that was kind of cool, that whole turning the Nile into blood and the frogs and the locusts and, the, and all of these things, I think maybe, maybe we do trust you. And once they had established this trust relationship, God said, now let me help you and, and show you how to live, not so that we can have a relationship, but because we already have a relationship. You trusted me and you followed me, and now here are some commandments, and they're going to help you live your lives. But here's the deal. The laws didn't precede the relationship. Please understand that. The laws didn't precede the relationship. The relationship preceded the laws because God's desire has never been about laws. It's never been about a to-do list. And God's desire has always, since day one, been about a deep, intimate relationship with the Creator. And so when we come to the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to find that Jesus' message is not, here's ten more commandments, here's another little to-do list, hit four out of seven and I'm going to love you more. It, it, it's, that's not the message in the New Testament. The message, <clears throat> excuse me, the message is, is, I want you to put your trust in me because I'm trying to restore a relationship that was broken in the garden. And just as a lack of trust broke it in the garden, a realignment of that trust will bring it all back together again. And so that's why what we want you to do more than anything in the world is to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior because a relationship with Him is initiated through an act of trust, just like it was broken in the garden by a a lack of trust. So we want that more than anything in the world. Place your trust, place your faith, place your belief in Him. And so throughout the New Testament, God is after growing up our faith. In fact, the mission statement for our church is helping people find their way back to God, and the finder that's in there is faith, because the more confidence and the more faith and the more trust you have in a relationship, the better that relationship is. So the best ones, the best relationships are the ones that you can say, I trust you when you did what you said you're going to do, but also I trust you when it doesn't look like you're going to do what you say you're going to do. My default is I trust you, not I don't trust you. And so that's the nature of a great relationship between husbands and wives and boys and girls and, and just people, and that's the nature of a great relationship that we have with Lord. And so the Lord's in, in all of the Bible, God is wooing, that's a cool word, God is wooing men and women back into a faith-based relationship with you, and He relentlessly pursues you and me, and re- He never stops pursuing us, and more than He wants uh, obedience, and more than He wants simply for you to know a bunch of stuff about Him, like anybody else, He wants a relationship and he wants a relationship that's characterized by, you know what, I trust you. 
I don't always understand you, but I trust you. You don't always answer the prayers just like I expect you to, but I trust you. Things don't always go my way, but I trust you. It's you saying, I have confidence in you that you're going to do that thing you do because I have trust in you. And so there's this cool passage of Scripture that I want to share with you this morning. It's in Matt, the book of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the first, first book of the New Testament. Um, it's one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. Um, and Matthew, and it was Matthew's very meaningful book to me because Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, which has nothing to do with the message, but I just, I like the book. It's a cool book. So in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 5, and this Jesus performs a miracle. And, and the thing that is so cool about, the, uh, about what Jesus does and this, this narrative is it's the only time that I've ever found in all of the New Testament where Jesus is amazed by what somebody else does. So how would you like to be the only person in recorded history that, meet, that made Jesus go, whoa, did y'all see that? And so that is here in Matthew chapter 8. And, and the amazing thing, too, is that he was not amazed by some act of obedience, uh, he was not amazed by, uh, did you see him not commit adultery? Or, or did you see her, she didn't steal that purse? It was not that. So let's, let's look at verse 5. In verse 5, it reads, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. And you all know what a centurion is. A centurion is a Roman soldier who is in charge of 100 men, and whatever he says, they do. Jump, how high? Now, we've got to use our imagination here a, a bit. And so if you imagine... Jesus walking through town, and all of a sudden this soldier comes up, and the soldier's probably flanked by a couple of his guys, and the disciples are thinking, oh my God, we're so busted, Matthew, what did you do? Why are the police coming after us? And, and so here comes this centurion, and he's going to ask Jesus for help. And first of all, the Romans are not the good guys in first century Judea. The Romans are the guys that said, you and you and you and you and you come with me and you never see them again. The Romans are the guys that you hide your silver from. And so here comes this Roman, pagan, Zeus-worshipping heathen to Jesus to say, look, dude, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to do that thing you do. And so here in verse 6, the centurion goes on. He says, Lord, my servant is at home, lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And now I'm reading between the lines a little bit because I know how badly the Jews hated the Romans. And at this point, Jesus' followers are listening. This guy says, oh, I need your help. My servant is lying at home paralyzed. And the disciples are probably thinking, well, good. We hope he dies. We hope every one of you dies. We hope you all, all hundred of you take it back to your families, and every one of your families dies, and we hope you take it back to the emperor, and the emperor dies, and Jesus, come on, let's go help some of our Jewish friends, because this dude is not one of us. And so here's Jesus' response in verse 7. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? To which Jesus' guys are going, wait a minute. You cannot start helping the Romans. I mean, look, the Jewish leadership already thinks that we're nuts, and you start walking around helping the Romans, and we're toast. And so in verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And now his boys are thinking, that's right, you don't deserve to have us come under your roof, and you know what? We'd just as soon not come under your roof. But listen to this in, verse, uh, in the rest of verse 8. But just this, listen to what this guy said. He said, just say the word. Jesus, just say the word, 
and my soul. Just how did God create? He just breathed us into existence. Jesus says, I mean, the centurion said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, Jesus, I've been watching and I don't need you to come home with me. I think if you just write right here eight blocks away, just say the word, you know, Bluetooth or wireless or something, you just do it and I think that he'll be healed. You know, whatever it is that you got going on, you can just heal him from right here. And then he gives this explanation in verse 9. The centurion gives this explanation. He says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I tell this one, come, and he comes. And I, tell, <clears throat> I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So, for I myself am a man under authority. And those are, that's a cool little phrase. It's like he is saying, Jesus, you and I have got something in common, and here's what we got in common. You're like 5'9", 6'1", I don't know. Nobody knows how tall Jesus is. It doesn't even matter. He's got this beard. You know, he's Jewish sort of looking guy. He's got two arms. He's got two legs. And I mean, I've been watching you, and there's nothing really extraordinary looking about you, but you command illness and illness obeys you. And so I'm thinking to myself, self, hmm, Roman centurion, I'm 5'9", I'm 6'1", I got two arms, I got two legs, uh, my hat's not any bigger than anybody else's. You know, there's a hundred guys, though, that they do everything I say, and I say to this one, go down the road, and you guard that building, and if you fall asleep while you're guarding that building, I'm going to have your head cut off, and they do exactly what I say. And I realize that the only reason that they do what I say is not because I'm bigger or faster or smarter or stronger or whatever than they are. The only reason these hundred guys do what I say is because I represent Rome. And so if these hundred guys do every single thing that I say because I represent Rome and sickness and, and death and life and illness do what you say, obviously you're representing somebody. So what we've got in common is that we're both under authority. And I get my way because I'm under the authority of Rome. And I don't know whose authority you're under, but he must be super ginormous. So no, you don't need to come home to my little house to heal my servant because whoever it is that you represent can just do it right here. So now listen to the next verse. It's verse 10. When Jesus heard this, and what is it that he heard? He heard just say the word and my servant will be healed. So when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Little Greek word, thalmazo. He was amazed. He was astonished. He was astounded. He was blown away by what had happened. And this is the only time in the New Testament that that word is associated with Christ. And so Jesus is thinking, wow, I wish all the Jews were like this Roman centurion. Peter, pay attention to this. Matthew, did you see what's going on? John, did you see what that dude just said? And so again, it's the only time where Jesus where that word is ever used uh, about him. And so he's saying again, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And here's how verse 10 finishes. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So you know what blows him away is big faith. What do you think moved Jesus? It's big faith. And here's a guy, for all we know, is still worshiping Zeus. He didn't know the Ten Commandments. He didn't know the Ten anything. He'd never been to the temple. He couldn't even get in the temple. He couldn't even speak their language. But 
but he just recognized that Jesus had something going on. He recognized that somehow or the other, Jesus was connected to the creator of illness and disease and life and death. And he put two and two together, and then he expressed that faith. And Jesus said, wow, this is what I've been trying to tell the rest of you goofballs for three years. This is what I've been trying to accomplish. And you just, we've been walking and hanging out and sitting around the fire for three years, and this Roman centurion is the one that gets it. You people should have got it. And so he says, look, just say the word, and I can shake your hand, and I can go home, and I trust beyond a shadow of doubt that you've done that thing you do, and my servant's going to be healed when I get home. That is big faith. Now, when you read the rest of the New Testament, the thing that makes God jump up and down and the thing that's most honoring to him is your faith. And, more, and, and what thrills him more than I'm going to do what you tell me to do and, and more than I'm going to read what you said uh, to read is these expressions of faith and confidence, which leads to the question, if God is into big, big, big faith, what is it that, that results in big, big, big faith? And I read a lot, and I read a lot of, of stories about people's faith journeys. I just I adore reading that stuff because I adore watching God do the thing he does. And I read a book called, and I saw these patterns that, uh, these patterns that showed up in, in my life and these patterns that showed up in everybody's really story. And I read this book, the name of the book was Deep and Wide. And it put that pattern that I couldn't really put into words uh, deep and wide, put it into words, and over and over, five things surfaced. And they're not in your Bible, so don't start looking in your Bible for this list. It's really just an observation. And I want to bring these five to your, to your attention because I think as you evaluate your own experience up to this point and as you walk down the road uh, in this journey of faith, that God is going to leverage these five things. Probably all five of them, but for sure some of them. And so, The first one is practical teaching. Practical biblical teaching. That when somebody tells their faith story, it always involves, and then I went to this Bible study, or then I started going to this church, or this group of ladies invited me to a precept class, or um, I joined this Revelation small group. Somewhere along the way, somebody exposed you to practical biblical teaching teaching and you may have have grown up your whole life with a bible in your hand i have no idea but you may have always thought or never thought there was anything in there for you that that that's just some old book of of myths and stories and tales and then something happened and you opened up this book and it's like this one time that oh my gosh the words just jumped off the page and they landed in your heart i i don't understand it i don't know what it is about that bible but that's the power that is in that scripture so The first one is practical biblical teaching. And the second one is providential relationships. When anybody tells their story, lots and lots of the time it's, and then I met this girl, or I met this guy, or we met this couple, or my boss walked in my office and he started asking me all these questions. And all along the way, one of the big faith catalysts, one of the things that God uses to grow up our faith, imagine this, is people. And looking back, when you look back on that journey, you think, oh my gosh, God just plopped that person down in front of me. And I'm telling you right now, there ain't no such thing as coincidence. Uh, it, it, God somehow just put you in a place and he put that person 
where your lives intersected and then God took that intersection and both of your faith just blows up. And it's not just a relationship. I'm not saying there's something wrong with just a relationship, but this is a providential relationship. This is a a God-ordained, orchestrated intersection of two people's lives. So the second one is, is these providential relationships. The third one is spiritual disciplines, private spiritual disciplines where this is that part of your life where somebody somehow taught you how to spend time alone with God. They may have taught you how to pray. When I was growing up, I never prayed one word in my life until I was 38 years old. had the vaguest idea how to pray. I thought it was the weirdest, most oddest thing ever. And somebody had to show me how to pray. And so it may be prayer. It may be somebody bought you a Bible and said, you really ought to read this, and you got alone with yourself and the Lord and you read. Or it may be journaling that somebody gave you a journal and they said you ought to, in your, in your quiet time, you need to, to write down and you need, to, you need to journal. Or it may be that uh, you were encouraged and you began giving on a regular basis. And all of these things are spiritual disciplines that you do by yourself with God sitting there with you, and then He takes those things and He grows your faith with them. The fourth one, so the third one is this spiritual discipline. The fourth one, and this one doesn't feel so good sometimes, the, it's pivotal circumstances, pivotal life circumstances. When somebody tells the story of God working on their faith, usually in there, there's something that happened in their life. And it may be good and it may be bad and it may be joyful and it may be really, really sad. It may be somebody died. It may be somebody got sick. It may be somebody uh, uh, went through a divorce. It may be the loss of a child. It may be the birth of a child. It may be um, uh, getting married. And so one of the things that we hear a lot is about that the marriage one. And, and you may have these two people, this guy and this girl, and, and they're not believers, but they met. They met in high school or something, and they fell in love, and then they got married. They waited till after high school to get married. I don't know. I didn't say that right. They, but they met, and a year or two later, they got married. And, and a year or two after that, they had this child and, and, and this miracle. And if you've, if you've never seen the birth of a child, how anyone could say that, that, that God, that that just happened randomly is just beyond me. That was a rabbit trail. Sorry about that, but... They look at this child, and, and this child is a miracle, and, but it's their miracle. And they know, I know every, every baby is a miracle, but this was their miracle. And they look at that baby, and they say, we've got to teach him right from wrong, and we've got to teach him how to read, and we've got we to teach him how to write, and, and we need to teach him something about God. You know anything about God? No, I don't know anything about God. Well, we've got to do something. Maybe we'll take him somewhere. And, and so they do. They take him somewhere to a church that teaches the Bible. And all of a sudden that little miracle baby turned all of them towards God. Now, how cool is that? You got 11 kids this weekend. 11 out of 18. Somebody do the math. What's that about? They're batting about 600? I don't know if that's right or not. 11 out of 18 kids are saved. That is unbelievable. You think those 11 kids are going to go out into the world and make a difference? Oh my gosh! It's going to happen. And so that some... Pivotal circumstance, youth camp, pivotal circumstance, it did that. And so the fifth one, and I want to park on this fifth one for a minute, the fifth one is personal ministry. That was not good. Serving in the name of Jesus Christ. And you hear people tell their story, and oftentimes that story is, and then they ask me to teach, and then they ask me to volunteer, and then they sign me up for this mission trip, 
and I've like been a Christian for two hours and I'm on an airplane somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean and I said, where are we going? And they say, Zambia, Africa. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm a missionary and I have no, how did I even get here? And it's in those, mom- those moments where you're moved into service and you're serving another human being in the name of Jesus Christ that you get scared to death. Now, it happens. And so I want to I share with you for a few minutes, a few months ago, on a Wednesday night, I got home from work. I teach a Bible study on Wednesday morning at 6.30 in my office. I'm at work at 5.30 in the morning or 5, 5.30. And I was tired, and I was sitting on the recliner, and Susan came in there, and Susan talks fast sometimes, forgive me, but Susan talks fast, and she said, you remember last week I was telling you about these people, these trunks of love people, and they go downtown, and they serve the homeless, and they feed the homeless, and they're doing it tonight, it's at 8.30, and I want to go, and do you remember me talking about that last week? And I'm like, just, I'm, I'm like, I'm a man, and like I probably, yeah, I remember, I remember all of it. And then I, and then I said, but baby, I'm so tired. I said, can we do it next time? And she said, she said, okay, and she went down the hall and uh, I guess went in our bedroom. And about 15 minutes later, the Lord just, a bolt of lightning or something, popped me in the head with conviction. And he said, you got to go. You just disappointed your wife crazy. And so I said, I hollered back there. I said, let me put some shorts and some flip-flops on and, and we'll go down there. And so we did. And I didn't know what to expect. Had absolutely no idea what to expect. I thought maybe you set up a table and these people come up and you give them a ham sandwich and they go on their merry way and then somebody else comes up and you give them some soup and a ham sandwich and they go on their merry way and it's nice ladies, Lauren and Brandy and Aaron, said to us that night, honey, that just ain't how it works. Um, we go and we find them. We go in the woods and we go under the bridges and we go on the railroad tracks and we go wherever they are. And let me tell you, they're everywhere in our city. I imagine there's homelessness in everywhere, in every city in the United States. And I promise you, you drive downtown, every patch of woods, every patch of woods you see, every abandoned building you see, every bridge, every railroad track, there is somebody living there and they become invisible to our society and it ain't right. It, it just ain't right. And that first night, and I want to tell you, I want to tell you just about a few of the guys that we've met. The first night, and I'm changing some of these names so y'all don't say you got the name wrong. I'm changing the, some of the names. The first night I met this, the very first night I met this guy named John. And John had been on the streets for nine and a half years living on the streets. And John is a good guy. John, like you and me, has got major Goliaths in his life that need to be slain. Just like I do and just like every one of y'all do. And that night, after talking to him for a few minutes, and we loved on him and hugged on him, and we, you know, he ate and we fed him, and he kept talking about, I ain't no good. I just ain't no good. I'm sorry. And, you know, blank, de blank, de blank. And, and she left me, and, and just, I don't know why I did it. I did it again. And, I mean, it's just really, self-worth was so bad. And then he said, but that's okay, because the law will be over tonight. And so... I thought, all right, and we kind of pulled him off to the side, and I whispered in his ear. I said, dude, are you talking about killing yourself? And he just kind of looked at me with a yes, that is what I'm talking about. He didn't say that, but that was the case. And we sat there and talked for 30, 40 minutes probably. And I, finally I said to him, I said, dude, how about you get in the Jeep with me and, and Susan, and you come help us serve your fellow brothers and sisters that are hungry. 
and he did. I didn't think he would, but he did. And we watched over that next uh, two hours, maybe, of him, and he was in it, into it. And we watched his faith grow over that two hours. And you know what? My faith exploded in watching that. And I watched my wife's faith explode in that. And so, this was a couple of months ago, maybe. It was probably about eight weeks ago. And and I don't know how many, how many jobs he's had or how many jobs he hadn't had. I know he hadn't had one in a while. But guess what? Last Monday, 5 a.m., he, he was at a job, starting a new job. I assume that he worked all week because we didn't see him Wednesday night, but we'll see him tonight. And I want you all to meet Al. Al, Wednesday before last, we met Al in the water park between 2nd Avenue and 4th Avenue. And Al was laying on the ground dying of cancer with his dog by his side named Oscar. Al's sick. Al's real sick. Al couldn't hold his bladder. Susan and I went and got some Depends. Lauren and Aaron and Brandy and these people are all standing around him. And I'm talking about a sick, shown-up sick man. Folks aren't supposed to die laying on the ground in a park in Columbus, Georgia. It ain't supposed to happen. Now, I'm not telling you that I got all these answers because I don't. I just know that ain't supposed to happen. And so we're sitting there, and we just said, we didn't verbalize it this way, but God's going to do that thing he does. We're going to trust that that's going to happen. And, and I don't remember who it was. It was Lauren or Brandy or Aaron, one of the three of those, I'm sure, that said, let's take him to a hotel. So we did, and guess what? God provided a way for that hotel manager to get that room paid for. And now hospice is involved because one of these, one of these ladies is a hospice nurse too. But hospice is involved, and, and, and Al's getting care on a daily basis, the thing that hospice does. And more on him in just a second. Last Sunday night, we ran into a guy named James. James doesn't live in the water park. James lives on a place up on 3rd Avenue. But he was in the water park that, that night. And he came up, and we fed James, and we shared the Lord's love with him, and we talked to him, and we hugged on him, and we loved on him. We put our arms around him. And I asked him, I said, I know you're down here, but you want to ride up to 3rd Avenue. And, and James said, I'll be all right. And I said, I said, okay, man. I said, are you sure? And he said, I'd be all right. And I thought, okay. And so James walked on into the darkness behind where we were. And I don't know what it was. Ten or 15 minutes later, somebody looked back there and saw James lying on the ground. And so we walked back there, and we're bent down, and we're talking to James. And, and we said, you know, dude, are you okay? Are you sick? And James said, COPD. And I said, oh, my God, this guy has got COPD. And somehow or the other, somebody said, you got an inhaler. And he went, and he reached in his pocket, and he pulled an inhaler out, and he breathed in the inhaler. And, he, and then he could talk a little bit better. And we're sitting there, and, and I thought, and I could see it, and I think it was Lauren, but I think I could see in her eyes, and I'm like, we cannot put every homeless person in Columbus, Georgia, in a hotel room. But somebody said, Al needs a roommate. Boom. I don't even remember what time this was. It was getting late. So you fast forward till about 12.30, 12, 12 o'clock, something like that. In the Howard Johnson's downtown, Al is moving out of a single room into a double room, and James is moving in with him, and all the while with Oscar the dachshund. Is he a dachshund? 
Yeah, so with a dachshund, so the hotel dude is letting all that go on in his room. And then Thursday, the Lord showed up and did the thing he does on Facebook. This is, when this Thursday? Yeah, Thursday, um, he made housing available to the two of them at a place called the Grace House. And they're there now with Oscar. Flash that picture up there, James. This is James and Oscar the dachshund. And so these two guys... Two weeks ago, we're laying dead, laying dying in a park, and today, God just showed up, unbelievably shows up, and, and does a miracle and does a work in their life. I got one more guy that I want to share with you about, and this, we met Eddie on uh, Wednesday night. <clears throat> and Eddie, on 2nd Avenue, under a little overhang next to a building, leaning against a brick wall. And I don't know, Eddie's maybe in his 40s probably from the Virgin Islands and we sat there and we talked with him and we ministered to him and we fed him and somebody had beaten the snot out of Eddie. Eddie's right eye was swollen pretty much shut and he had a cut on his forehead and then they beat him up and right and I'm like what do you he didn't have nothing and you beat him up and you robbed him of nothing and but they did nonetheless and so he's sitting there leaning against that uh, against that brick wall kind of wrapped up in a towel with a hat pulled down a little bit over his head. And there's a lady, and we're talking to him, and, and there's a lady that was with us, and she started singing, and I don't remember, but I think she was singing Amazing Grace. And I looked down at Eddie, and he had a tear in his eye. He said, God is so good. Now, think about that. He's penniless, he's beat up, he's homeless, and he said, God is so good. And it reminded me of in the book of James, in the beginning of the book of James. James said, count it for joy. Count it for joy when various trials and tribulations, my brothers and sisters, come your way. I've never seen a better example of counting it for joy than when that, when that guy said that. It's unbelievable and so again when you're asked when you're asked to step out oh good god when you're asked to step out and be the hands and the feet of jesus christ it can be scary and you know what happens when you get scared to death you become dependent and you're praying in your own words and you're like i don't know what i don't know but i know that i need you i don't know what i don't know but i know that i'm dependent on you um, and, that, and God is saying, that's exactly where I want you to be. And so here's the deal. When you get in those moments, you get overwhelmed and you, get, you feel so like underqualified and you feel so over your, uh, just totally over your head and you're hanging on to God for dear life and you're just, you're just hanging on and you think, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. You know what? You're right. Because I can't and I'm not ready. But when God comes on alongside of me and he puts his arm around me and he holds my hand, the two of us can. But I can't do that by myself. And knowing this may prepare you for that moment when you lose a job, knowing these five things the Lord uses. It may prepare you for when a son says, I'm going out on my own way and I'm not coming home, or your daughter comes home with bad news, or the doctor calls, or whatever it may be, you're going to remember, oh yeah, God uses these pivotal circumstances in my life to grow my faith. And that doesn't take away the pain. For God's sake, that's not what I'm saying because the pain is real and the pain, the pain hurts. 
It just means that you remember that God can take that and God can use it. You don't read the Bible so that God will check off, I did it Monday, I did it Tuesday, I did it Wednesday, oh my gosh, I missed Thursday, he puts an X by your name. You're reading that Bible every day because that grows your faith and God uses that to grow your faith. See, simply knowing the Bible, simply knowing the Bible in isolation and independence, it makes, it, you know what it does? It makes you arrogant. It makes you a Bible snob. You can get so much knowledge about the Bible, but you're not dependent on God. You know what you are? You're just smart. There's a lot of smart folks out there, but there's not a whole lot of people that are just desperately dependent on the Lord. And so if you just load up on that information and it's, I'm a good Christian, I don't look left and I don't look right, I'm looking straight ahead and I'm holy and I'm righteous and and I don't do anything wrong and I don't even have the internet and I don't have a web-enabled cell phone, I don't even have a TV, and and you look at these people and you say, I can't believe what she did and I can't believe that I saw him go in that place and I can't believe and I can't believe and I can't believe and because I'm so good and holy and righteous, God must love me more. And you know what? I'm all for holy and righteous living, and I'm all for, for the Bible. I have a thirst for that Scripture. And I hope we wake up every day with a pure heart and a pure mind, but if we do that in isolation of constant, constant, conscious dependence on the Lord, we're just going to become a Pharisee. And so what we need and what we want and what we desire is a deep, intimate relationship with the Lord. And He's growing our faith, all of these things. So yeah, I want you to get smarter and I want you to get holier and, but more than anything, I want you to get dependent on the Lord and that's what God's desire is for me and you and that's what God's desire is for our children and for our church and it's the reason that we do what we do here at our church because we think God is going to leverage those five things to grow us up and you say, I don't know what's going to happen today, I don't have the vaguest idea, but I trust you. I'm not going to fear and I'm not going to be anxious because I can't control the future anyway, but I'm going to trust the guy who can. And that's where God wants you to be. And so it's so ironic when you read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read the accounts of Christ's life, and you read what was going on in first century Judea, that the very guys who were the, the goodest and the holiest and the most righteous in that society, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, They missed him when he walked right down in front of them because they were the goodest. And apparently they had no moment-by-moment total dependency and trust in God. And then here comes Jesus. And Jesus says, could I have your attention, please? I want you to meet the centurion, the Roman centurion. And he don't know squat about the Old Testament. And he's never been to the temple. And he can't recite one of the Ten Commandments but that guy has got more faith than any of y'all put together. And so he says, please trust me. Just trust me. And so my encouragement for you today is if you're not a God kind of person, if you've never, never made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life, let today be the day that you, that you trust him. And it's okay to be dependent on Him because you and I cannot do it by ourselves. And so let today be the day that you do. And if you would say that you have made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life, let those five things that I talked about, recognize them when they happen just and your faith will grow. Recognize when somebody's path crosses your path, 
that that was a God-ordained thing. And let that grow your faith. So let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we love you today. We thank you and we trust you because of who you are. Lord, we have faith in you. And, and we have faith in you because you tell us the truth and, 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 and you're faithful. And even when we're faithless and even when we're unlovable, you love us anyway. And Lord, my prayer for our, for, for our church is that, uh, that we would go out and, and, and be salt and light in a lost and dying world. Lord, I praise you like crazy for the 11 lives that were changed last weekend at youth camp. And we trust and we know that you're going to take those lives and you're going you're to use that and you're going to shape that and you're going you're to do things in our community with that. And Lord, we lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our host teams to come as we wrap up our service and our band closes with one more song. Um, If you are visiting here, my name is Christy. I am um, married to Jeff, one of our pastors here.